You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show, a dedicated phone line for those struggling with anxiety, depression, and stress. And behind the mask, one doctor's COVID experience on the front lines. But we begin with the challenge for businesses. Another lockdown and a stay-at-home order. 2021 is not off to a great start for so many businesses around this province. These restrictions put in place by the government earlier this month are a last-ditch effort to try and turn the tide on the alarming increase in COVID-19 cases here in Ontario. But at what cost to small and medium businesses that are barely able to keep their heads above water? Now is a good time to check in with Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for joining us on the feed, Rocco. Thank you so much for shining a light on this, Anne. Well, and it's got to be a spotlight at this point. So we look through the entire province, and because of the lockdown, because of the stay-at-home order, businesses have had to shut their doors, and people are being told not to go out. So how can businesses stay alive through this? Well, Uh, Thousands have already shuttered their doors, and we will lose more before uh, this ends, tragically. Uh, And the reality is that the second lockdown uh, is far worse than the first one because the first time around, uh, we we had some capacity, small businesses had some capacity to borrow, um, and, uh, and we also believed, you know, we hunkered down and we'll be out of this in a couple of weeks and then back. Now you've gone through almost 11 months uh, and um, you've borrowed whatever you can borrow and then some, you've accumulated all kinds of bills and then people got hit right around, you know, Christmas and the post-Christmas sales, which are critical sales periods, particularly for our retail members and and they get hit at that point and it's all over. In the opinion of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, do you think it is fair that areas, towns, cities, regions that have very few COVID numbers, like Collingwood, for instance, or Gananoque, that they should be under the same type restrictions that the hot zones are under? It's a, it's a great question and it's one that uh, that we debate uh, at the at the chamber frequently, uh, and then we talk to the local hospitals and public officers of health in those smaller communities. And yes, it's true they have fewer cases, but they also have much less capacity. If cases suddenly spike, it wouldn't take much. And if you have a zone uh, that doesn't lock down beside a zone that is locked down. I'm not a medical expert, but I understand consumer behavior. And unfortunately, there'll be people moving across to try to take advantage of it um, and, uh, you know, to go and to buy, et cetera. Uh, And and so as much as we absolutely hate it, uh, unfortunately, we're left with this blunt instrument. The, The other path would have been, could have been, should have been much more investment in testing, 
particularly rapid testing, tracking and tracing, so that you could be far more surgical. Where we don't know exactly where things are starting and how they're spreading, and that's true in over half of the cases according to what public health is telling us, you, you're left with no choice but to do the blunt instrument and, and then everyone or you know, the majority are paying the, the price when in fact we should, be, we should be in effect locking down individuals, not society. <laughs> There are grants and funds from the Ontario government to help businesses try and survive, but the province is in lockdown and we're ordered to stay home. So how can businesses continue to do business? Not all companies and small businesses are equipped to move online. It is absolutely true. And it's not just grants and, and programs from the provincial government. You know, we see the, the whole package uh, at the federal level with uh, wage subsidy, with uh, rent subsidy, um, you know, even municipalities are kicking in, have deferred municipal taxes and other fees in many jurisdictions, done incredible uh, work. But the, the reality is nothing replaces having the cash register ring. And yes, uh, many companies have been able to, to pivot and to try to take advantage of, uh, of online sales. But even there, we don't have equal capacity either because of the nature of the business or because in many parts of the province, you don't have broadband and you can't compete uh, in the modern world on, on dial-up. And so that's an area where they, they need to invest. One of the things that we were pleased in these latest measures was the Ten to twenty thousand dollar outright grant, small business grant that the Ontario government put on the place. They understand at least that small businesses can't afford to take on any more debt. So any help going forward has to be in the form of cash if you want these companies to survive. And it's important that they survive because the more businesses we allow to go bankrupt the harder it is to recover when this ends, and it will end. We do have a light at the end of the tunnel with vaccines. You say we allow, but how do you stop companies from going under? Well, you've got to get cash to them now. Uh, that ten to $20,000 uh, is a start. Uh, but quite frankly, there are a lot of programs that the provincial government in particular put in place that were deferrals of taxes and fees. Uh, and for a small business, a deferral is nothing different than a loan. It may be a zero interest loan, but it's a loan. So it's debt that has to be paid back. And, and the provincial government has a very hard decision ahead of it with respect to how much of those deferred taxes and fees, which are in the billions of dollars, they decide that they have to write down and effectively give it as a grant or see an enormous number of companies go bankrupt because that it's one or the other at this stage. Can we talk about big box stores? Why are they allowed to remain open? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a really unfortunate circumstance. We, at the end of the day, as human beings, need food. And so the law is that where there are groceries... Uh, um, you know, you stay, you remain open to provide those essentials um, because we have to get them somewhere. 
And the unfortunate circumstance that's occurred is many of these big boxes that have significant groceries, but also, you know, are selling books and jeans and hardware and, and, and the rest. And so our smaller members are saying, well, how is this fair? Uh, and some provinces, and you look at uh, ones like Manitoba, basically told the big boxes, look, you have to cordon everything else off. You can only sell groceries. Anything else, you've got a problem. Uh, it's complicated. It's hard. I get it. Um, but there are a lot of our members that are, are screaming quite loudly that this is not a level playing field. Um, and they understand they want to do their part, but everybody needs to do their part. So that begs the question, what do you do, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, to help guide and support struggling small and medium-sized businesses through this pandemic? What is your duty? One, we're a voice. We're bringing those messages, those stories, those problems to government, and together with our provincial colleagues across the country, played a not insignificant role in ensuring that we have things like the wage subsidy program, like the rent subsidy program, like the different programs that the, that the provinces have put in place. And also communicating that with our members because many smaller businesses, you know, they don't have a lot of excess capacity to sort of write grants and, and the rest to try to give it to them in the simplest uh, form possible and communicate that. Also to provide um, services and support wherever possible. So, for instance, during the summer, you know, we brought together some large uh, corporations and the government to push a program called uh, Canada United, which was all about buy local, support local, uh, and not just you know from an advertising perspective, but we generated funds several millions of dollars with which we're giving grants of up to $5,000 uh, to small businesses to pay for PPE and other costs with respect to um, reopening safely and, and, and doing business in these, uh, in, these, in these very difficult times. So trying to be their partner in as many ways as possible from being their voice to actually providing them with, uh, with services and wherever possible with, uh, with funds as well. Rocco, what about York Region right now? How is it doing? It is it, it's such a wonderful, vital region comprised of cities and towns. What's the state of businesses here in York Region? Look, no region is immune. Um, York Region has the incredible... Uh, blessing of being a very diversified uh, region with um, uh, very creative, dynamic businesses in pretty much every sector from, from agriculture to advanced uh, manufacturing and technology. And, uh, you know, the technology companies are doing very well uh, in, this, uh, in this period. And we're hearing that there has been, uh, there has been good news out of our uh, friends at GM, for instance, uh, up in Ingersoll in the Cami plant, making an announcement of a billion-dollar uh, investment. And the reason that affects it comes down into, into York Region because of supply chain and because the Advanced Engineering Center for GM is right there in Markham. And so there are bright spots and there are 
areas that we're going to rebuild from. We just have to make sure that we keep as many businesses as possible with head above water. We need to make sure that we're continuing to invest uh, in broadband so that everyone can compete uh, effectively. And uh, the latest thing that we've launched uh, yesterday uh, is, is our Ontario uh, Vaccination Support Council, which is some hundred businesses, universities, colleges, and unions um, that are here to do our part uh, and help the government in whatever way we can to accelerate uh, the vaccination of Ontarians so that we put this behind us once and for all. We just need supply at this point. Exactly. That, that remains the issue. But once that supply comes, uh, we're going to have to ramp up significantly. I mean, the highest date so far, we had 15,000 vaccinations uh, in Ontario, and we need roughly 90,000 a day every day starting today uh, to hit the 8.5 million uh, Ontario uh, adults uh, by September. And every day that we're not hitting 90 is, you know, a bigger total that we need the day after. So having in place the, the broadest, widest distribution mechanism possible is to everyone's benefit. So a long road still ahead of us, but with a tiny twinkle of light at the end of the tunnel. As always, Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, thank you for joining us on the feed. Always a pleasure, Anne. You stay positive and test negative. I like that. Thank you so much. And the same to you, Rocco. Next on the feed, Behind the Mask. Stay with us. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The stay-at-home order is not only affecting businesses, but our mental health as well. Tina Cortez with the call for help. The Canadian Mental Health Association, York Region and South Simcoe has responded to the unprecedented pressures of COVID-19 by introducing a dedicated supportive counselling telephone line. With more information is Lisa Wood. She's one of the counselors on that supportive telephone counseling line. Lisa, welcome to the feed. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell us about your work as a counselor on that line? For sure. I'd be happy to share uh, what we do. Um, So we have provided a number to the public, and uh, anybody can call in and just ask us questions about mental health, anything that they're experiencing or going through. Um, they might call in about a family member. Um, it's really just to provide support and resources and, as we like to say, uh, meet people where they're at. And has this line always been a part of CMHA or is this new and because of the pandemic? Um, this is a brand new service as of March. And uh, so we just felt there was a need in the community to open up the telephone lines to really anybody that wants to call in and just find out about what we do or if they have any questions. Um, Yeah, so just really since March that we've had it open. 
And can you share with us, how have the conversations changed since March? We are almost a year into this pandemic. Have you noticed that the sentiments of the callers, the feelings have changed over this last year? I would say yes and no. Um, In the beginning, we were getting a lot of calls from seniors uh, who were living alone or who were living in long-term care facilities, and they were feeling quite isolated, feeling alone, um, not sure what to do, um, not receiving a lot of information. Um, Family members that were calling in regarding their uh, their own parents or their kids, we had students calling in. Um, from college, university, moving back home and trying to adjust to their, their new lifestyle with family members. Um, I would say some of the calls have changed since uh, winter started. Uh, people are worried how long the winter is going to be for them. Um, we're being told to stay at home. What does that look like for them? And uh, so, so lots of challenges with anxiety and worry. Um, and even economically, people are calling and, and wondering what to do. So it has changed in a way and it hasn't. So um, we're just here again to provide that support to, to the callers. And obviously every call is different, but in general terms, what kind of advice do you provide? What do you tell them? For sure. Yeah, the, the kind of advice that we provide people is we ask them how they're feeling, um, what they're doing for themselves to manage those certain emotions of anxiety or worry or stress and then provide them with skills to manage that anxiety and stress. And those tools might be um, talking to a friend, um, going for a walk, um, just identifying those emotions, uh, where they're coming from, what they can do, Um, just really some tips to to manage it, maybe some deep breathing, um, listening to uh, some music, just really providing practical tips that they can use in the moment to um, manage those emotions and then also providing resources um, in the community, whether it be at our agency or other um, agencies in the community. And is there a time limit on these calls? How long do they usually last? Um, The calls usually last about an hour or so, and uh, we leave it that they're able to um, call us back if they wanted to. Um, They can call back and speak to another counselor. Um, Sometimes we'll call back and do a check-in to see how they're doing. Um, So we kind of really tailor it to each person. Um, And then also if there's uh, more um, need, I guess, than that we can provide, we would uh, follow up with an email and provide them with resources um, or refer them to other programs at our agency. And is this a line that someone could call on a regular basis? Uh, the, the phone lines are open to everybody and anybody who wants to call in. Um, in terms of regular, uh, we would call in. They would call in, pardon me, and just uh, we would assess the situation. And if they needed further uh, support, which, which is normal, um, we would uh, refer them to our central intake line and um, have them call in and gather more information about uh, their needs. In our own communities, in our own circles, how do we recognize the signs in someone who is struggling? One thing I would suggest is to notice any changes. And a lot of times they are very subtle. Um, So things that I would look for would be, um, are you sleeping? What's your sleeping patterns like? 
Um, are you feeling motivated to do your uh, regular activities every day, such as um, making your meals or going for a walk, um, noticing your emotions and your levels of stress and anxiety, and maybe taking um, maybe a, a daily diary? Um, those are the things that I would try and watch out for um, in yourself and in your family members um, to, to identify another piece of advice I would give to people is, is phone us. Phone us and ask us questions. Speak to our central intake line and say, hey, I'm going through this. What do you think? Um, another resource I would suggest to people is phoning their family doctor and just saying, I'm going through this. What do you think? Um, and, and getting some advice and, and support. And is it particularly tough at this time of year? More clouds, less sun? Definitely. It's, uh, we've had lots of gray days since January has started, and uh, so that does affect our mood. Uh, people could be suffering from seasonal affective disorder. Um, a lot of us are working from home, feeling very isolated and lonely, missing our colleagues. Um, a lot of us are missing our everyday routines and our families. So we've been asked to adapt to a lot of things um, in a relatively... It's gone on for a long time. We're all looking for that end to the pandemic. We don't know when it is. So um, there, there's been lots of changes that we've been asked to, to make as a society. Can I ask you, does this type of phone-based coaching or counseling, is it just a temporary fix and someone might need longer-term care? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would say most people are looking, are calling in to, to find out, um, is this what they're going through is normal? And one thing that we say to a lot of our callers is, is you're not alone. Um, I don't know what you guys are, but this is my first pandemic too. <laughs> so we're really here to support, you know, the caller. And, um, you know, temporary fixes is, you know, we're just really here to meet people where they're at. Like, what are you going through? How can we help you? And what's the best way that we can support you? Um, and if they need to call back in again, that's okay. That's what we're here for. And again, um, we have many programs and services, which I would um, advise anybody to look up on our website and see what we offer and give us a call. Don't be shy. That's what I would say. Just give us a call. Okay. So where can listeners go for more information? And can you share the phone number with us as well? For sure. Yeah, the number is 1-866-208-5509. And uh, the best thing to do is to leave a message on our general mailbox and your call will be returned, we promise. And we really look forward to hearing from you. Um, and that's what we're here for is to support the public um, and to have, have mental health for all and, and really support people um, and, and let them know that we're here for them. Lisa Wood, CMHA, York Region and South Simcoe, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much for having me. Healthcare workers have been hard at work on the front lines, putting their health, both physical and mental, at risk. Karen Johnson with the story behind the mask. 
Today we have a chat with Dr. Priya Supple. She's been on staff at the William Osler Health System and staff at Brampton Civic Center for 26 years. Her main focus is family practice serving patients who, not only her own patients, but people who do not have doctors who've been trapped here, uh, maybe visiting, with no health care. And she's also covering that as well. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Supple. Thank you so much for having me on the program this morning, Karen. You know, we're living in days and times right now where your focus is usually one thing as a, as a, you know, as a doctor, but what is it like these days for you? What are your work days like at the hospital? Uh, Karen, at, at this moment, uh, my practice is primarily confined to office-based work in the community. Um, in my previous life, I was doing, you know, uh, surgical assists and delivering babies at the hospital and looking after inpatients. But during the pandemic, certainly our focus um, has changed. Uh, our offices never closed. So we, you know, pivoted when we got that fateful news in, in the middle of March, just before March break, that the pandemic was afoot. Uh, we had to ensure that we were looking after our patients. So our doors never closed. We did, however, change the way in which we are delivering care. So we went to a virtual uh, hybrid where we are now talking to our patients um, on the phone. Uh, sometimes we're using a, vi a, a video platform where we can actually video conference with the patient and bringing in patients that uh, are required to be seen. We are obviously trying to minimize the number of people that are out and about the number, minimizing the number of people that are actually in our facility at one time. If you can imagine a busy family practice office with four or five practitioners, the waiting rooms would be full on any given day. And at this point, we are bringing in one patient at a time. We are screening them before they come. Um, we are, you know, having to sanitize our rooms, but we, you know, the care for patients such as our prenatal patients, that mm -hmm. care can't stop. Our babies and newborn care, immunizations for our children and for our elderly, those kinds of things we have to continue to do. Our diabetic patients, our, our patients who have complex medical needs, we cannot address that simply over the phone. So we have never closed our doors. We are, are continuing to see our patients uh, and treat them. And uh, sadly, what we're finding is that a lot of patients don't realize that their family doctor's offices are open mm -hmm. uh, and they or are afraid of going to seek care in the office or at the hospital. So unfortunately, at times when they are presenting mm -hmm. to the hospital or to the office, their care has uh, really been compromised and, uh, you know, something that may have started off as a very simple problem has now, months and months later, become a significant issue. The number of cancer patients that were missed because right. of, you know, patients not presenting to the office. So instead of picking up a cancer early in March or April, we are now picking them up in October, November, December. Um, patients with cardiac Sopo, conditions. Don't, so, don't mean to, to interrupt you. Now, you're dealing with all these patients. Are you not concerned about your own health and well-being at this point, too? Because you also have your your mom, too, who's, who's elderly. She doesn't live with you. But your interaction and your family with dealing with all these sort of patients with different needs. Well, you know, 
Karen, I think when we go into medicine, we understand the the risks that are inherent uh, in the job. Um, and certainly, I, I'm not going to lie, when, when this all happened and we didn't really know a whole lot about what we were dealing with when we were struggling with lack of PPE, um, you know, uh, staff also being afraid to come in. There, there is absolutely an element of fear, but as time has grown on, we are much more comfortable with our daily routine. So mm-hmm. I absolutely do worry about being exposed because sometimes uh, patients don't know that they've been in contact. They don't know that they're currently infected. They are asymptomatic when we see them. So absolutely, I worry about bringing something home to my family, bringing something home to my elderly mother. Uh, so that has been been really tough. Where where I do fear is for my pa- my colleagues who are working on the front lines in the emergency departments, and those are heartbreaking stories. Mm-hmm. Um, those are. I, my hat's off to, to my friends and colleagues who work in the emergency departments, who work in the ICU, um, in the hospital day-to-day, seeing, seeing the acutely ill and seeing COVID patients being rushed in sicker and sicker. Um, that is really, that I think is the, the challenge right now. And, uh, we and have very to heartbreaking really too, though, as well for you, because this is also lost, you've also lost a colleague due to COVID uh, from your clinic and from your staff. Tell me a little bit about that. What happened? Well, um, yeah, it's still, it's still very fresh. We, we lost uh, a colleague who's been with us for 14 years, uh, working primary care with us um, just last Monday from complications due to COVID. Um, and unfortunately for him, a family member was exposed to somebody in their work environment. And despite their best efforts, COVID uh, ran through their house and um, my colleague who uh, is, you know, in his 60s had not been coming into the office to see his patients. We made that decision to not have him come in, but he was managing his patients um, virtually. And unfortunately for him, uh, he did end up in the hospital just after Christmas um, and uh, deteriorated further and ended up being intubated and on a ventilator in the ICU on New Year's Eve and uh, rallied a little bit. Um, And then unfortunately, um, his lungs uh, were um, quite affected. And Mm -hmm. then uh, as we often see in these patients, uh, we see multi-system organ failure. And and sadly for my colleague and his family, he passed away last Monday. Um, So it's just, it's heartbreaking and it it really hits close to home. Um, We've had another office member a uh, young patient, uh, a young staff member who was diagnosed, unfortunately, with end-stage cancer um, in the spring, and we lost her in the fall. But the, her journey uh, over the few months where she was going into hospital for chemotherapy by herself, uh, no family members could be with her when she was admitted numerous times right. to the hospital where her family members could not be with her until mm-hmm. they knew that she was going to pass away. And it was a really heartbreaking, heartbreaking way for families to have to deal with Absolutely. patients uh, and family members who are not necessarily sick mm-hmm. with COVID. No, it's true. But the it restrictions true. that have been placed are, are heartbreaking. You know, our, our patients should not be dying alone. Our, our family members should not be dying alone. 
No, they shouldn't. And we are so sorry for your loss. We really are. I mean, I've, I have known you in full disclosure for a few years, and, and I, I've seen your frustration with regards to this and so forth. What, what made you go into medicine to, to help people? Because you just you always have always put your heart, there, heart out there for patients. Well, Karen, I think, um, you know, for me, I, I grew up, my father um, was an obstetrician gynecologist, and um, he was always in, uh, a firm believer in service and using your knowledge and your skills to help others. So mm-hmm. I grew up with an amazing role model who was constantly giving back to his community. And I think I knew at a very young age, I, I had an affinity for science and I loved kids and I loved helping others. So um, I feel like probably at the end of grade school, beginning of high school, I felt that that's where I wanted to be as well and was fortunate enough to get into medical school uh, and have really had a, a wonderful career doing cradle-to-grade medicine for the last 26 years. I've had some great teachers and mentors and um you know, uh, perhaps it's in the genes because, as you know, my son yes. is also yes. uh, in medical school as mm-hmm. well. So third generation, which makes, you know, uh, makes us all very proud. And I know my dad would be super proud. Um, he passed away just a few months before my son found out. So um, we are mm-hmm. we are really thrilled uh, that he's going to carry on this family tradition as well. I want to ask you one last question before we go. What is your message to those who are hitting the COVID wall at this point? You know, that frustration uh, that we are all feeling, everybody wants COVID to go away. Everybody wants to go back to seeing their friends and family and hugging their friends and family and sharing a meal together. But unless we, as a community, unless we, as neighbors, follow the rules that our public health officials have laid out for us very clearly, unless we follow what our premiers are telling us, this COVID is not going away. The numbers continue to rise. Our death tolls continue to rise. Our ICUs are full please listen, stay home, only uh, interact with members of your immediate household. It is not fair to take those risks. It is not fair to those who are working hard for you on the front lines. It is not fair to those families who are losing their family members. Um, We all have to just continue to, to... abide by those restrictions and know that there is hope on the way that the vaccine is out there. You know, we've been vaccinating, trying to get the numbers out. Some of, uh, some of, you know, the, the um, issues that we're dealing with is supply, but there is hope. Like people mm-hmm. just need to hang on a little bit. It's affected schools and teachers and mental health and businesses. We, we need to get back as a society, but the only way to do that is by isolating, staying home, not interacting. Um, I, I really, my my request is that people really listen to the rules. I was very dismayed yesterday. I went into clinic and was coming home around five o'clock, and the highway was chalk block full stop and go traffic. That is not a lockdown. I, I mean, my my plea is for right. people to please listen and stay home. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your moments and, of course, your frustrations and your goals. And like I said, as a doctor out there fighting on the front lines for us, we truly appreciate it. Dr. Priya Supple, thank you for joining us on The Feed. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. Have a great day.
After the break, a guide to up your life. The details coming up. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Next on the feed, a new guidebook to help York Region residents secure housing, clothing, and so much more. Afwa Ball with that story. Have you ever been in the situation where you're trying to find a certain service, some help? Maybe if you're going through something and you just need something just to read to lift your spirits up and you're just thinking to yourself, where do I start? How do I even begin to look for this information? Well, here is where Up Your Life Guide comes in. Joining me today to help you better navigate how to go through this guide to get you the resources that you might need. I'm now speaking with Charlene Biggerstaff, Community Engagement Project coordinator with Up Your Life or Up Hub more specifically. Charlene, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us on the show. It's our pleasure. Okay, so for residents that may not know, Up Your Life Guide, what is it about? Uh, great question. The Up Your, Up Your Life Guide has been around in York Region for some time and it was formerly called the York Region Living on a Budget and it's a booklet that has brought together 400 different local social services um, standing across mental health, um, addictions, uh, developmental delay, um, helping people find services um, such as food, clothing, recreation, anything, <laughs> you name it, it's all right here. And it's very convenient as well. Instead of, you know, Googling one sort of thing and then trying to sift through the, the different sort of resources, everything is just all all in this one resource, right? It is, and I think you mentioned a really great thing by saying Google. Um, you know, we all Google stuff, and it's it's, it's our go-to spot. Uh, but there there is a gap, and in that place where people are in that mode of maybe being a bit stressed out, or you know, a bit of anxiety or depression, or maybe just just need help, like you said, like just plain old need help. But what do I even Google? Like, what am I even looking for? And, and often Google will bring in um, things that aren't even in our area. So this is really focused right in on our York Region services, crisis lines, um, shelters, um, services, you know, and, and doing this project, I guess what I can say personally is, is there is so much help out there. <laughs> it's amazing. And Google just can't bring it all in one place like this. You know what I also love about this too? I love that there's personal stories. That's also part of this. If you can talk to me a little bit about maybe why that specific aspect was also added onto this guide. Absolutely. The book was inspired uh, 23 years ago um, with from peers. And in our case, peers means those with lived experiences around mental health and addictions. And they were on their journey of recovery. And so we brought together an advisory board of peers. And storytelling is a part of what peer support work does. And it's a growing field. And we all need that mentor. We all need that support. We all need somebody, you know, some days to just say, you got this. You're going to, it's going to be okay. And that's kind of what these little stories and tips and and stories of resilience and anecdotes really are uh, meant to do inside this booklet that helps guide you to places sometimes you don't even know 
is available. <laughs> Absolutely so thanks right. Thanks to our peers. Now, of course, we know we've been living with COVID-19 now for almost a year. A lot of these services have had to pivot. So has the guide sort of had to amend uh, their way that they are able to, you know, list how some of the services are still available now since the pandemic began? We did. Um, we took a bit of pause before we got it out to print in the fall. And it just came out early December. And some of the items that we went in and updated was adding icons. And one of the icons was going back through all of those 400 services and double-checking who did that exact pivot, who is offering things online now. And so we've added that icon. Additionally, we added um, a symbol for money. And you won't find that often through the book because there's very few of these social services that require money. <laughs> so, so really, it's a guide to free service, too. Thank you, then, for also mentioning that, too. I mean, I guess some of the perks, too, of also having both the print and the digital version of this guide. Absolutely. And like you said, with COVID, even though we're a lot of services are doing things online, um, you know, getting that printed copy can be hard. However, we identified that it's really important. There's about 15% of the population who still isn't online. So that printed copy still has a lot of value. However, the uphub.ca has the same directory embedded in it as well as we're, we will be excited to come back and share um, as we grow those pages and more community information around peer work around York Region on the website. Since uh, before that sort of transition into digital, uh, of course, being print, it was more largely circulated in that way. How many prints or copies have been circulated since the beginning of this guide? been around like I said for 23 years so I'm not sure I don't have that history mm -hmm. but this actual project the rebranding and bringing the peers together since 2017 was um, is a grant with Ontario Trillium Foundation and there was a print print copy the last round was about 30,000 copies and we just printed another 16,000 copies so we are hoping that agency partners out there get wind of it and be like we need this here too We've also looked at some other agency partnerships to, to work with. For example, the Vaughn Library has brought it into all 10 of their loca locations as, a, as an in-house resource guide. Um, and we'll be looking to all the other libraries across York Region to make sure that they have one copy on, on hand for anyone in, in the neighborhood. Also moving forward, I know that we are thankfully also towards the tail end of this pandemic now that vaccines are now coming out. Any sort of interim thoughts as to maybe if the guide will be pivoting again as to how to revamp its services or revamp how residents can find new services when maybe things start to open up again? That's a great question. I think like everyone around COVID, we really are taking it in short strides <laughs> and talking to our stakeholders, our community and peers and asking them, what do you need? What's going to help you the most? I really do personally, I hope that um, the online uh, companion piece will be the place where we can constantly evolve. And we, when we go back to do a large print run, and another year or so, 
we could start to adapt the things that we heard and uh, grew online into that book. Since we are still waiting for the that big tomorrow when things start to open up, we're still dealing with the today. So for residents then, uh, let's give them uh, a twofold answer here in terms of where they can get the information if they are online uh, and they want to access this guide, where, where can they go? And then for those who still rely on the print because, hey, I still like a good copy in my hand, where can I go to get access to this guide? If you are looking online, uphub.ca does have a full directory and we're going to have uh, more pages that are being populated every day for, for more information around peer services um, as well as other listings that may have not made it into the book as of yet. As far as the print copies, you can find it in sort of that front face-to-face locations of social services. So often with the York Region, with uh, the hospitals, with the police services, uh, or anywhere that you may have a case manager as well out there in the public. There's over 50 locations, so it's hard to list them all very quickly. But there, there's, there's a lot of partners out there in helping us in, in distributing, and I'm hoping there's going to be more soon. Perfect. And then also, too, if there's maybe a local agency in York Region and they also want to connect with you in order to say, hey, we can also help people out there with a specific service that they're offering, uh, they also go to uphub.ca to get in touch? Correct. Absolutely. You can get a hold of uh, myself. Also, the UpHub project is nestled with York Support Services Network, so you can get a hold of me through that aspect as well and any of our frontline social workers. So, Um, We've got a whole team of people out there um, ready to share the word and and help people who who are either in the system and searching for services or, you know, maybe just need a little help, just a little help. You know, you don't have to be, uh, have a social worker and and be in dire straits to get help. And I think that that's a really important message that we've got to get out to people right now. COVID's been a, it's been a long year. We're all going to need a little help. So let's help each other out. There you go. I, I won't even add anything to to that. You said it perfectly. And on that note, the Up Your Life Guide, it's there to help you in any way that you need it. And it's available as an open resource for anyone at any time. Charlene Biggerstaff, the Community Engagement Project Coordinator with UpHub. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Over now to Jim Lang with tales from inside hockey's hot stove. Well, we are in the depths of winter and we're in a stay-at-home order and everyone's trying to do their part to just stay inside and try to keep the bubble small. What better time than to read a good book? And one of them, written by a member of the media, member of the Hockey Hall of Fame and a multiple best-selling author, is something I think any real hockey fan would love. It's called Hockey's Hot Stove, The Untold Stories of the Original Insiders by Al Strachan. Al, how are you? Oh, great. How are you doing? Long time, no talk. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I think the timing of this book is so perfect, and I was thinking about this going through the book and, and thinking about everything about your career, Al. We, we always think we're so connected now with social media, but I find when it comes to knowing the real stories of hockey, we're further away now than ever, as opposed to you and your Haiti, where we really got a sense of what was really happening. There's no doubt about that, because in those days, we talked to the players a lot, we talked to the coaches, we talked to the general managers, and the people that were on the hot stove were really a part of the hockey community. Everybody in hockey knew them. You'd go into a dressing room, and all the players would say hi, and when I started, of course, you know, you'd know who the players were, and they didn't know you, but later on, I didn't know the players sometimes, guys who would come up and talk to me, because they'd all seen us on TV. The Western teams all arranged to have the their uh, 
pre-game workouts done at a time so that they could get back into the dressing room and see that show because they never wanted to miss it. And uh, we would be, get calls all hours of the day and night from players, coaches, general managers, and whenever we went somewhere, we would talk to them, and many times after games, we would meet them in one of the local watering holes. And so as a result, we knew pretty well, not just me, but the guys on that panel knew what was going on throughout hockey, and we knew what we could safely say without getting ourselves and or the player or GM or coach in question in too much trouble, and we would pass it along. But today, you can't get to those players. They don't want to talk to the media anymore. They'd rather go home and play Angry Birds or Fortnite or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. And you've got PR people who don't uh, think that they should be allowed to do it. And you've got NHL management who want them to keep their mouths shut. And you've got, unfortunately, the demise of newspapers. So there really isn't an awful lot of competition. And a lot of the kind of people who used to be good hockey writers and would pass that along were forced out of their jobs with buyouts or whatever, and they ended up going to NHL media. And in NHL media, you're certainly not going to pass along what the fans want to know, or you won't be at NHL media very long. So as a result, you're quite right. Yeah, people don't get what they used to get. Before we get to the, the teeth of your time on the satellite hot stove, the one thing I always found fascinating is your relationship with Wayne Gretzky, Al. And here was mm-hmm. not just the greatest player in the history of the NHL, one of the great athletes of the 80s and 90s who would have no problem to sit and have a coffee with you and talk about what was going on in the league. We had a lot more than coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we became friends earlier on, and it started back when, in the, oh, around 1980 or so, when, if you remember, he was just coming into the league, and there was a lot of criticism of it. You know, people like Stan Fischler said he couldn't play in a six-team league, and Black Jack Stewart would have wiped him out. Black Jack Stewart couldn't skate backwards, for Pete's sake. (laughs) Yet there were a lot of people, and, and it's typical in Canada, who wanted to be critical of him. And I did a column saying that instead of being critical of him, we should perhaps treat him like Brazil treated Pele and make him into a national treasure. And uh, so you can't export him. <laughs> that would have kept him in Edmonton. <laughs> I guess would never, never pass that one. And uh, as is always the case with Wayne, it's not necessarily what he sees so much as what Walter sees his father, and Walter saw that column and passed it along to him, and then the next time I saw Wayne, he said he appreciated that, and uh, so we started talking, and then shortly after that, I just had the opportunity to cover the team, and we sort of, we got to uh, know each other, and uh, we just, uh, I guess partly because when you're in a position like Wayne, and don't forget in these days he wasn't married, you just in the afternoons, you don't have an awful lot to do. You can't go and hang out in some coffee shop or something. You certainly can't go to a bar in the afternoon. So you get on the phone and you chat with people. And if you're chatting with hockey people, the primary currency is gossip. So we just exchanged a lot of gossip, you know, hockey gossip, not not the malevolent type yeah, of yeah. who was doing what to whom and who might get traded and who was on the outs with his coach and all that sort of stuff. And uh, we just became close friends so much so that any time we were in the same city, then we would go out for dinner, sometimes for breakfast. I mean, once I had to meet him in New York at 7 o'clock or something at this little coffee shop on 22nd Avenue or something where he used to go 
and it was sort of an L shape. And back in the L, if you looked in the front, you could just see straight down. But if you went down in that L, then you could go to the right, and there was a little sort of couple of tables back in there that couldn't be seen from the street. And that's where he went for breakfast every morning. So we'd meet there and uh, meet at the... Uh, Sherlock Holmes in Edmonton quite a bit. They had an upstairs area that most people didn't know about. You could go and sit up there and stay out of sight a bit and, uh, and we'd go to Madison when we were in Toronto. So, yeah, and, and usually go for dinner after the games uh, in Los Angeles and places like that if he was at home. So, yeah, we, we became close friends and, and that book I did in 99 is just uh, it's a hockey biography and it just goes through his hockey career and uh, he talked about a lot of it as we went along, and I didn't have to do too much primary research with him, although there was some, because I was at all the events when he did all the important things, when he broke Gordie Howe's record, when they won the Stanley Cups, when he got traded, all these sort of things, I was there, so we just discussed them a bit after I'd pretty well written the whole story. Speaking with Al Strachan, the author of Hockey's Hot Stove, the untold stories of the original insiders. When you started working on the satellite hot stove on Hockey Night in Canada, at that time when John Shannon sort of plucked you from, you know, the depths of your laptop to be part of this, for me as a hockey fan, the Hockey Night Canada was the zenith of sports production in this country. It didn't get bigger than that. When did you realize that how big it was and just kind of impact it had you being on there in the second period every night? It was a gradual process. Uh, you know, the more people would come up and talk to you and the more freebies you get offered, the more rent-a-car guys who said, boy, I'm going to give you an upgrade, or the hotels say we're going to put you in a suite and all that sort of stuff. You know, and, uh, People just would come up and talk to you and gradually realized how important it was. And John Shannon, of course, was the guy who started it all, who put it all together, and he was also the guy who grabbed Ron McLean off as a weather reporter in Red Deer and put him on with Don. And, uh, but it was his idea, just needed a gap to, or uh, something, a bridge to the gap between the uh, second and third period after he got the idea, John Shannon did, to have hockey doubleheaders because before Shannon there was just one game that started at eight and you needed something to sort of glue it together and bring people back to stay with the hockey and, and Satellite Hot Stove was his idea. Uh, I mean, you worked so long with Ron McLean on that show, doing the satellite hot stove. It didn't end well. Uh, have you got any idea why Ron won't reach out to you and have a conversation man-to-man and just settle things, Al? I guess it's his nature. He's never spoken to Don since that fateful night and no Remembrance Day a year ago either. He never contacted Don again. And uh, I guess perhaps he doesn't want to be asked some uncomfortable questions. I called him a number of times for, about this book, and, and he just did not respond. And I called him as well one time. The second time, I guess, I got fired. I, I called other people, and other people called me. He was the only one that wouldn't be in touch with me after that. And I think that he had something to do with it. That's why. Hmm. <laughs> I think he, <laughs> there was a degree of collusion there, but that's just my guess. But I guess it's just his nature. He doesn't want to deal with the people who might know things about him that he doesn't want made fun of. And I wouldn't have crucified him in this book. I would have given him a chance to explain himself, but he wouldn't call back. On the flip side of that, Al, where there's someone that you end up speaking to about the book that surprised you how much they gave you and how you know upfront they were? 
Well, Milbury was really quite good. It was a large chapter on Milbury, and he spoke about it and how he got involved and his feelings toward it. He was a great, great admirer of that show and, and would never have left if he hadn't been offered what he called obscene amounts of money to go to the NBC telecast. And he was quite proud of being that. And, you know, that he, to him, that, that was the hockey show. It was the way it should be. And, of course, Milbury had been in all aspects of it. He'd been a coach and a player and a general manager. And so he had that side of the operation all locked down, whereas I was more on the media side, and it, it created a natural conflict. We didn't have to make it up, but we both understood each other, and we knew that that's what we were there to do. So so he was very good, and uh, Eric Dehacek, who's been a close friend of mine for well, since dirt was invented, basically, <laughs> uh, told me about... Uh, about his feelings the, the night that the Calgary Herald tried to get him replaced during the time of the strike, and they tried to get him taken off uh, hockey night. And I'd never heard that, that story from Eric before, and the, you know the, how upset he was that they had done this. And so people opened up. Everybody was good. J.D. was good, John Davidson, and, uh, and Huey, Jim Houston. Everybody was involved. Everybody who got involved was good. <laughs> but Ron didn't get involved. Well, I mean, still, it's a fantastic read. I, I love a good story in this word, world of 140 characters. I like getting into the depth of a story, <laughs> and this is why I think it's a must-read for any hockey fan. Al Strachan, Hockey's Hot Stove, The Untold Stories of the Original Insiders, available at Chapters Indigo, Amazon, wherever you buy your books. Check it out, Al. Always a pleasure, and uh, thank you for so many years of uh, great hockey information. Well, thank you for calling. It's been a long time since we chatted, but it's nice to talk to you again. Take care. All the best. You too. So if you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.